Welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. A lot of the new museums move away from trying to be a very consistent and coherent narrative history. That was Sir Charles Samara Smith, a freelance writer, curator, and art historian. He was educated at Marlborough and King's College, Cambridge, spent a year at Harvard University, and returned to the Warburg Institute as a postgraduate student, with a stint as Christie's Research Fellow at Christ College, Cambridge. In 1982, he joined the staff of the Victoria and Albert Museum as an assistant keeper, with special responsibility in the history of design. In 1990, he was appointed head of research at the V&A. Following his service as the director of the National Portrait Gallery from 1994 to 2002, and then director of London's National Gallery from 2002 to 2007, he was responsible for many major exhibitions, including Titian, Rubens, El Greco, Late Caravaggio, and Velázquez thereafter serving as secretary and chief executive of the Royal Academy of Arts until December 2018. A prolific author and lecturer, he makes regular appearances on television and radio, and among many other affiliations and honors. In 2019, he became the first professor of architectural history at the Royal Academy of Arts. He was appointed a commander of the most excellent order of the British Empire in 2008, and was knighted in the 2018 Queen's Birthday Honors List for services to art, to architecture, and to culture in the United Kingdom. Welcome, Charles. Glad to have you on the podcast. It's very nice to be here. So pleased to connect, and it's on the occasion of your new book, The Art Museum in Modern Times, which will be published by Thames & Hudson on April 13th. And in addition to providing an illustrated introduction to over 40 museums stretching from L.A. to New York to London to Hobart, Australia, it explores the changing motivations to build, to design, visit museums around the globe, as well as innovations in the organization and display of exhibits. Not all of the museums in the book will be familiar to every reader. Could you share what drove the selection of museums? Yes, so there are 43 uh, short entries. I initially wrote the book decade by decade, and I chose the museums which I thought were most obviously important and influential in each decade. I found they tended to select themselves, though I have to confess, I added ones I particularly liked, were not necessarily so significant. So I included the Christchurch Picture Gallery, which people might not think was amongst the 43 most important. After I'd finished the first draft of the book in July 2019, a few people read it, and they all felt it was trying to do slightly too many things. It combined broad developments in museum policy and new building projects. So it was like two books in one. Mm -hmm. So I'm afraid I did the opposite to what I think my publisher wanted. I just stripped out the general narrative and focused on just the new museums because they seemed to provide a coherent story. And then mm -hmm. I added three very key museums. I added the Museum of Modern Art, which I'd originally excluded because my narrative had started uh, in the Second World War. I added the Menil Collection in Houston, I have to say mainly because Michael Comforti, who uh, we both know, the former director of the Clark Institute in Williamstown, was one of the early readers, and he made me feel badly that I'd excluded it. It is among the people's favorite museums. Well, it is, it is. And I'd visited it. And actually, it was one of those ones I sort of thought of including. So that was easy. And then Mark Pachter, who you probably also know, mm -hmm. was the former director of the National Portrait Gallery, in Washington, he encouraged me to include Mona in Hobart in Tasmania, 
mm-hmm. which he had been to for understandable reasons I hadn't. And then luckily I discovered that my flight to Sydney could make a stopover at Abu Dhabi. So I was able to include the Louvre at Abu Dhabi. As you see, I restricted it to museums I'd seen. I know there will be people who will say, oh gosh, you should have included, for example, the Zeitz Museum of Contemporary Art in Cape Town. But I wanted to include ones I knew well enough to write about them from the inside. Right. And of course, we get glimpses of your experiences in those museums, both as a visitor and as a colleague from time to time. And it's a very thorough introduction to both built museums and then in a coda in the book, really, over the last several dozen pages, the uncertain terrain that's facing museums in the future. And you cite four lines of attack that are very much in play against museums wealthy donors and their influence, the restitution of objects to source countries, the assault on the canon of art history, and addressing the legacies of slavery and discrimination. Is it fair to summarize all of these as contests of authority of who should be running museums and who museums are serving? Does that seem legitimate to you? Yes, that's absolutely correct. Fair summary. You and I are two years apart in age, so I guess the question I come to is, are our training and our attachment to certain conventions in museology observed in the past now so dated as to be quaint? Well, I have to say that one of the books I've been reading recently is, as you may have read, Andres Santos' interviews with the current generation of museum directors, Mm -hmm. published just in November, called The Future of the Museum. And it made me realize that there is now a whole generation of museum directors who see their responsibilities, I think, as essentially civic and in some ways political, as if they're civic leaders. And they don't have, in the same way that I think our generation was expected to, a very obvious declared commitment to the centrality of the collection. And I think it's that issue which provoked the recent debates in ICOM about what a museum is. So yes, part of me thinks I'm past it. But then if I look at the current generation of museum directors in the United Kingdom, Gabriele Finaldi at the National Gallery, certainly a very traditional art historian, says Luke Sison at Fitzwilliam, Sar Sturgis, the Ashmolean, both Luke and Sar worked at the National Gallery. So I don't think I see knowledge and art historical expertise being swept aside, at least this side of the Atlantic. It's interesting over on this side of the pond because a lot of museums that are encyclopedic, which is to say those that cover antiquity to today, have hired contemporary curators in the last few years out of a sense perhaps that they're the ones who will know the leading collectors in town, the leading patrons of art, the people who are most deep-pocketed. That's had an interesting effect on how encyclopedic museums look at themselves. Do you see a distinction in leadership challenges then between the encyclopedic museum and the modern and contemporary that falls along certain lines? Yeah, I do think they face rather different challenges because, as we both know, the big encyclopedic museums like the British Museum, Metropolitan Museum, the Louvre, face different challenges to the straight art museums not least because they're so involved with and challenged by issues of restitution. If I look at the British Museum, it's a much more difficult place to run than the Tate because it's faced, how do you display the collection? What the narrative is? What do you do about Africa? What do you do about the Benin bronzes? 
Recently, Anthony Gormley, the sculptor, suggested that they should completely get rid of the traditional dominance of Greece and Rome as being the source of Western culture. So I don't really envy Hartwig Fisher, who is its director, because so much of the British Museum is about Greco-Roman antiquity, not least in its architecture. Charles, if there's a reckoning around the four contests of authority that you single out in the book, what do you think might be lost in institutions that are being reborn under new leadership and new aspirations? As you say, I see there being essentially four contests, as you mentioned. Sponsorship and the role of the rich, restitution, the canon, debates around Black Lives Matter and representation. And thinking about it, I'm afraid I think the trickiest could be the issue of sources of wealth, because museums, most especially in the United States, have traditionally been places where, as you and I both know and have experienced, wealthy private collectors have felt comfortable and have had a big, indeed, as trustees, determining influence in how museums are run. If they get displaced from the governance of museums, and if they then all decide that they'll build their own private museums, as Eli Broad has in Los Angeles, then it does seem to me that the model of the public museum, which at the same time benefits from private wealth, could be in trouble in the future. I suspect this was one of the things which took place in the arguments over the sale of works of art from the collection of the Baltimore Museum of Art. I'm afraid I've always felt that I agree with Bernard Mandeville, who felt that private vice leads to public benefit. But I recognize that this is now a deeply unfashionable attitude in the current moral climate. Well, one of the things that I certainly have been advocating is to look at endowments and how museums invest the money they receive from people who may have earned it in ways that are considered today either immoral or in some other form unacceptable. And by investing in ways that eliminate so-called toxic assets, the most profitable industries today are green energy. And to me, that's a way of dealing with that inherited wealth. Is that something that you would sign up for and agree with, or is it too simple-minded? I agree with it, essentially. Uh, When I was at the Royal Academy, not surprisingly, because the governing body consisted of artists, the artists were very anxious that we weren't investing in things which they regarded as inappropriate. And we talked about it a lot at the investment committee. But as you will know, it's tricky because investors invest in funds. The funds tend to be invested across a whole range of different companies. And they hate having their hands tied. So that I was interested to see that, for example, Trinity College Cambridge, which is one of the richest institutions this side of the Atlantic, I think as rich as the Queen, they've said they'll take investments away from fossil fuels. So that the mood is changing, but it takes time. One of the things that you also single out, in addition to the wealthy donor challenge, is the canon. And the dismantling of the canon obviously has huge consequences because it presages the end of any attempt at a narrative in the permanent galleries that's familiar, substituting what you describe as private and personal experience of works of art and the aestheticization of displays. 
turning to encyclopedic museums, what do you think the obligations of those museums are when they're showing centuries of artwork that are made in service of so many purposes that are not private and personal experience, but their propaganda, their hagiography, their religion, and not what Michael Govan puts it, less a monograph than a short story or a poem? I will be incredibly interested, as I'm sure you will be, in the consequence of the reopening of the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, because the Los Angeles County Museum of Art is, as I understand it, an extreme version of moving away from the traditions of the Encyclopedic Museum towards Peter Zumthor's and Michael Govan's idea of more subject-based exhibitions and displays drawn from the permanent collection. So that, as I understand it, and looking at the plans, you have a massive investment, and then less of the permanent collection will be on display, and less systematically. I guess a lot will depend on how successful this new model is on attracting visitors. The idea, as I understand it, is you move from an older, committed, and more specialist audience to a younger, more casual one. But I think we'll all be interested to see how it pans out. And these things could be, as you say, a bit cyclical. The cycles of fashion around museum display theory and practice are still playing out and they will continue to. I guess it's the first museum contraction. I mean, we talk a lot about museum expansions, but the gallery space will be smaller than in the previous campus. So that too is a factor. The larger point it raises is something that you review in the book as well, which is the fact that permanent collections in general, are seeming less in demand than temporary displays, temporary experiences. So among the buildings that you cite early in the book, which go back well over a century, what is going to happen to these massive displays that are less visited of permanent collections? I'm interested that you've picked up on the narrative because I didn't set out to write it in the way I did. I did each institution individually, and then I stood back about a year ago and tried to draw the threads together, it did seem to me very obvious that a lot of the new museums move away from trying to be a very consistent and coherent narrative history. Uh, What Michael Mm -hmm. Govan says is you move away from the encyclopedia, from the monograph, towards something which is more like a poem, is a very succinct description of what the change is. So that For me, in this country, the challenge is what Hartwig Fisher does at the British Museum. I know that they're doing a huge amount of thinking about restructuring the narrative. And during a brief period where we could visit, I went to see the new displays. And the new displays make much more evident what the history of acquisition is. They're a bit more political and they're a bit more informative I think that's a good move of trying to kind of re-inject excitement in the way visitors read and perceive displays. When you think about the V&A's reinstallation of the British Gallery some years ago, it was comprehensive in a larger sense as an aspiration. And now we're seeing much more fleeting experience and touchstones that change. I guess that's the zeitgeist, but I'm just curious if something's going to be lost from the world of education and research and public experience and public connection to the past. 
I found it incredibly interesting going recently to those British displays, which were done after I left the V&A, but I knew a lot of the people involved. Uh, John Stiles, who had done a lot of teaching with, was one of the people involved in the intellectual thinking which went into it. It was a huge, massive project. I think it cost about 35 million. And as you say, it was very systematic. It was a deep history. It was an attempt to get people to engage, not just in the narrative of objects, but a sense of the material history of the period. But when I went through it recently, it's partly the geography of the museum, I didn't think that it was as full of visitors as the quality of the objects and the interest of the objects and the quality of the display should lead one to expect. So that it's possible that that form of very well thought out and in some ways overdetermined display is now less successful than something which is a bit more casual. Defining success, you may remember I wrote an essay a long time ago called Metrics of Success in Art Museums, and one of the questions was if we focus on attendance as the primary concern of the number of visitors as the arbiter of success, will devolve into something that's entertainment-focused and race to the bottom. So I don't happen to feel that the number of visitors is an absolute indicator so much as a symptom of something. <laughs> and I would rather imagine that, like a public library, I don't say that the books that are checked out more frequently must be the best books, <laughs> and the ones that are languishing deserve to be sold off. And I fear that museums have gone too far in that direction. I share that general view. But equally well, the thinking which went into the British galleries assumed a level of engagement on the part of the visitors. Mm -hmm. And at least when I went round, like you, if a small number of people were getting a deep experience out of it, then I wouldn't mind. I just felt when I went through recently, now increasingly the V&A is a grazing museum. You know, people move mm-hmm. through it casually. You don't feel that people are going with the same sense of purpose to learn about the history of the past in the way museums were set out to do. And speaking of the way museums were set out to do, the responsibilities of museums that you've highlighted, recognizing the audiences that we haven't served, the artists we haven't served, the collections, the ways in which we have been off message. And yet the Boris Johnson government seems to have spawned what's been nicknamed an anti-woke agenda. What do you think museum responsibilities are in dealing with that, given the hegemony of the Ministry of Culture and the needs of museums to be subordinate to it? Yes, well, as you've probably read, that the Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sport, Oliver Dowden, summoned all the current generation of museum directors, I think there were 24 of them, I assume it was on Zoom, to be told that they were to follow the government's agenda, which was not to respond to political correctness. And people were very annoyed by it because they feel, I think correctly, historically, that museums in this country have been independent of government control. And it feels as if Boris Johnson's government has decided that they're going to adopt this anti-woke agenda as an electoral thing. They originally were anti-Europe and Brussels, and wokeness seems to be the new public enemy. 
and it may be electorally successful, but I'm against museums being too politicised. I think they should try and stand their ground as institutions of public scholarship and not be places of government propaganda. Yeah, we narrowly averted in this country an edict that Donald Trump put in place about the requirement of classical architectural form for public buildings. And I saw that. Pres- I thought that was rather <laughs> fascinating. It was just <laughs> nearly his last public edict, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and then it yeah. was rescinded by, right. by Biden after about 10 days. So it must have been the shortest government initiative of all time. And mercifully, and since it had echoes of Germany in the 30s, it was nice to see it expunged. The edict of a single style of architecture should prevail. Charles, art museums are said to be popular. We like to say that about them. They're very popular. They have tens of millions of visitors, but we have a global population of 7.75 billion people. So really, our audiences are a drop in the bucket, and most of the world's population may never see an art museum. What pressure should that put on museums to view digital experiences, not as they do today as a promotion of their glories, but as an open door for learning? I have to say that one of the things I got really interested in during my research for the book is how nowadays most museums do, as you imply, use their website really as tools for effective marketing and not as vehicles for open access learning. I found it interesting, sometimes a touch shocking, how difficult it was to find out about the circumstances in which many of these museums were built, partly because websites often have a rather short life, and it's assumed that nobody is much interested in what happened in the 1990s, for example. Much the best website from my perspective, and for my purposes, oddly, was the website of Columba in Cologne, which had downloaded a great deal of information about the planning and construction of the building, leaving the person using it to make use of the material as they chose. But I sense that this is very counter to the general trend in website development, which is often, I think, to reduce, sometimes rather shockingly, actually getting rid of intellectual content. The premise of a website which began in the 1990s, it was a novelty at first among museums, and the Louvre was one of the very first large museums to have a website, and it began to see its role as an educational tool. But as the marketing imperative has risen, I think the resources placed in websites have diminished. What's going to counter that? In other words, surely that's short-sighted. <laughs> are new directors who are more digitally inclined going to think differently about the requirements they have? It's tricky. I watch with interest. I mean, you will know that Mark Jones was like you, and more than I was a pioneer in recognizing the importance of digital information and public access. And when he became director of the VNA, he announced at some point generously that images on the VNA's website were going to be free and available and that they were going to stop charging them in order to increase their availability. But actually, of course, their commercial side have come in and it's not that easy to do it. They're very low resolution, the free images. 
I mean, they seem to go in both directions, so that I was involved in a big project which has begun called Art UK. It was originally called the Public Catalogue Foundation. And that has made all the paintings in British public collections available digitally. And that is a learning resource. Why is there a sense that it's competitive to have images or separate information or separate websites that has to be better, faster, quicker, instead of, this is an educational sector, surely, (laughs) shouldn't we all be working together? We should, but from my experience, uh, which probably is similar, we were both directors of a number of institutions. I found when I was at the National Gallery, for example, there was a well-established company which had interests in the images and their job was to make commercial revenue out of them. And then Nick Penny, I know when he became director, was very, very keen that the website should be much more comprehensive so that the information which is available in very expensive catalogs, some of which he's written, should be accessible generally. But I notice it's not, and I assume it's not, because the publishing side will have said, well, we'll lose revenue, which indeed they will. But in the end, there needs to be a proper and effective balance between those two things. And we both would believe that the public benefit should take priority. What about the larger spirit of competition and the degree to which, certainly in London, there's a wealth of so many museums and galleries that are, in their minds, certainly competing for audience, competing for patrons, resources, exhibitions, collections. What is different today from when you started as a director in that spirit of competition? Well, when I became director of the National Portrait Gallery in 1994, I had a chairman of trustees who was a businessman who owned companies all over the world. And he required me to track visitor numbers against those institutions he regarded as our competitors, i.e. Uh-huh. the National Gallery and the Tate. And I always mm-hmm. remember Nick's Rota was always startled that I had a much better knowledge of how his visitor numbers were doing <laughs> because I was required to report on it four times a year. So on my first day of being a museum director, I was expected by my chairman to at least pay attention to how other institutions were performing in a way which was, in a sense, competitive. And I think he did view his role as ensuring that we were doing at least as well, if not better, than the institution next door. Then, of course, I went to run the institution next door, which... I think is sufficiently confident not to worry about such things. As you say, it's a funny combination. In the days when I was running institutions, we were both collegiate and slightly competitive. And that was certainly true when I was at the Royal Academy. But your trustees' insistence on knowing these data points reminds me when I was at the Whitney, one of my first errands was to find out why we'd lost so many members. And I was presented with a printout of all the members who had failed to renew. So I went to our development department and said, so what's the percentage of this loss? And they said, yeah, we lose about a third of our members every year and we replenish them. We got about a 66% retention rate. So that was not the answer the trustee wanted to hear. He wanted to hear that these people still loved us, that they were still loyal to us, that they hadn't abandoned us. But in fact, membership is a transactional relationship, not one of loyalty, really, isn't it? 
It is, but as you're quite rightly reflecting over the last 30 years, when I started at the Portugary, we didn't have an audit committee, we didn't have a finance committee, we didn't have a development committee, and most of the trustees thought by far their most interesting responsibility was the selection of the works of art. And Mm -hmm. everything else was regarded as slightly secondary. It could be done by management or administration. And they certainly didn't expect to have statistics. By the time I got to the Royal Academy in 2007, even though the governing body were artists, still issues like the one you describe, how many friends did we have and how was it tracking and were they going up or were they going down and what was the rate of renewal? we did have to pay attention to. So that I think everybody acknowledges we've gone into a mixed economy. Charles, you end the book on an optimistic note, and you write that art museums have been resilient. What kind of preparation do you think the next generation of art museum directors need to have? And is an advanced degree in art history no longer a consideration? I think in the end, certainly here... Most of the museum directors have relatively conventional art history qualifications and then have added some level of management experience to that. The exception is Tristram Hunt, the recently appointed director of the V&A, who's pretty unusual in our profession in having been a successful politician in the House of Commons. But before he was a politician, he was a university professor He's got a PhD in urban history. So if I think about it, I'm pretty confident the next director of the National Gallery will be an art historian, but perhaps not necessarily the next director of the British Museum. Well, I don't mean to make us sound like old warhorses, but I think what your book does is it brings us up to the present, it takes us back to the origins, and it's a very helpful read through for someone who's really thinking about museums freshly, and especially in light of the contests you describe, but also curious about museums they may have missed. Thanks for making time today, Charles, for a very helpful conversation. Thank you, Max. I've enjoyed it. We've been speaking today with Sir Charles Samara-Smith, a freelance writer, curator, art historian, and former museum director. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping.